From the New York City area, welcome to the Badass Counseling Show, where the master badass himself, Sven Erlinson, takes you deep and gives balm for the soul, baby. Hi, guys. Great to have all you badasses here. I am Sven Erlinson, the host of the Badass Counseling Show. I am joined in the booth by Casey and in studio sitting right next to me, Rob the Rocket. Rob, how are you, young man? I am terrific. Thank you, Sven. And I have a, a listener comment here that I just love. This uh, person wrote in and said, gold, it's the stuff people face, the challenges of everyday life. Not only is this insight and teaching free, it's the absolute golden nugget of all counseling and therapy. Wow. Sort of some Vegas imagery there and the fact that we're not making any money. But that's okay, too. <laughs> but we're having fun. Um, that's really great. Thank yeah, you. Fabulous. Uh, is there a name on who wrote that in? Uh, no, it was a comment, I think, on uh, Spotify from one of the episodes. Ah, that's really beautiful. I love that. That's really neat. We work hard. And like Rob said, at we don't get paid for this. And Rob logs far yeah. more hours each week than I do. And he's the one that really turns it into, spins the, my dross into gold. So it's, that's hats off to Rob. All right, here we go. Struggling with the holidays and watching couples enjoy it. I feel terrible for saying that. Yeah, it's hard. I see this a lot with people, whether in the holidays or just year round, they're not in a relationship. They want to be in a relationship and they grow bitter. They grow jealous, not just jealous, but angry at couples that are happy. It's a perfectly normal response. It's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. What that says is that I know one thing that I long for, and I know that right now I am feeling negative. I'm feeling bad. I'm feeling angry. I'm feeling upset. I'm feeling jealous. Great. You're feeling. That's a start. I have plenty of people who come to me who can't feel. So you're feeling. That's good. Now, what do you do with that? Anytime you're feeling feelings that you don't want to be feeling, not because it's like morally bad to feel bad about other couples being happy. or It's not morally bad. It's just, it feels yucky to use a kid word. So sit down and start writing about it. Talk to your therapist about it, but do it on your own. Save yourself some money. Start journaling about how you're really feeling. Write a letter to your ex that broke, who broke it off with you, whatever it is. But if you can identify those feelings, you need to start flushing those feelings out. Why? Because the more you do that, flush out all of that stuff, not just from the present, but all of the feelings from the past, the more you do that, you're no longer dealing with the feelings of the past and the present, just the present. And the better you get at flushing out your feelings in the present, you want to know what happens to that little motor inside? It goes, well, <laughs> to quote one of the greatest movies of all time, Star Wars. You remember that scene where they're trying to shut off the energy to the Death Star so that they can get through the shields and Obi-Wan Kenobi is on that giant sort of pylon sort of, and he's scooching around it trying to get, he'll pull a lever and then you hear this great sound, right? The energy of the Death Star goes, that's what happens inside of you. The more you flush out your shit, your anxiety level, your fear goes, you begin to be calmer. I was in my early 30s. I've been journaling since I was 13, but I had been in a suicidal depression. And I was just journaling my ass off, reading every single self-help book I could get my hands on, and no therapist was able to help me. But I just kept sticking to what I knew was working. 
I knew, and I just kept going deeper and deeper in my journaling and writing letters I didn't send, and I felt it. And anybody who knows me from my young years, from teenage years, early 20s knows I was the most high-strung person you've ever met, seriously. And by my 30s, I could feel the difference internally. It was that I had begun to be calmer inside, and it wasn't forced. That's what happens as we do more of this work. We simultaneously, that motor slows down inside. We have more control over what speed we're going, but also we're clearer and just have more energy. All right, next question. Sort of took that in a different direction from where I thought it was going to take it. All right. Rob, you want to talk, it looks like. Yeah, this is one that I think you have personal uh, input on. I used to write all the time to sort out my thoughts and feelings. That is, until my ex-husband used it against me in court. Now the thought of picking up a pen gives me anxiety. Oh, what's the name on that one? First name? Uh, Becca. Becca. I've got a pad of paper in my hand right now. For those of you listening to the podcast... And not seeing it, I have a pad of paper in my hand, and I used to journal on anything and everything. I'd be in a bar and having a beer, and I'd be like, and I'd have thoughts in my head, and I want to flush them out. So I'd grab a napkin, you know, from the bar there. I've journaled on my hand, journaled. I no lie, it's going to sound a little weird, but uh, was at a restaurant. I couldn't find a freaking napkin, and I was. Um, <laughs> I went into the women's bathroom, bought a. Uh, pad like women's pad for down there and i use that to journal on i swear to god i have journaled on everything i know that's gross it wasn't a dirty one it was a clean one point is this that's actually a true story i've journaled because i just believe in this man it's like when i'm feeling stressed i just flush it out when i'm at the gym i'm journaling why because i just have more energy because i'm not storing the crud inside of me i'm not stuffing it down bottling it up that's like the worst life plan ever. Okay, anyway, back to answer your question or to address what you're talking about. Was there a question or a comment? It was a question that uh, the journaling gives her anxiety oh, because yeah. her ex used it against her in court. One pad of paper I left behind when uh, my wife and I divorced. When we parted and then the divorce went through, whatever it was, six months later, whatever. And one pad of paper of my journaling and it was my journaling about a previous relationship and how that woman had fucked me over and hurt my children and shit like that. And that one pad of paper, she kept it and she gave it to my first wife for my first wife to use in court against me, even though it was my private journals. So Becca, I know your pain. I know your pain. And I'm just going to be straight up honest with you. All right, I'm going to call it straight. And the bottom line is, I completely understand why you have anxiety about writing it down. I do. But you need to heal. And journaling is one of the top three most surefire ways for healing. I am an avid believer in it. Counseling, journaling, writing letters you don't send. In my book, I talk about another method that you can use. Um, and I list it right at the beginning of the book. There are other books that have one or two methods that I'm a big believer in. But here's what you do. If you have anxiety about journaling and fear of it being used against you, you need to be journaling about your fear. First of all, even if you never journal again about anything else, journal about your fear because you've just admitted you have fear inside of you. Okay, you've got one negative emotion that is determining some of your actions. Get that out, flush that out. But then here's the other thing. Simple, simple answer. When I'm journaling at the gym, and I always keep a notebook because I track my big lifts. I don't track all my minor lifts on pad and paper. When I'm done journaling with that, you want know what I do? I take it, I tear it up. 
and flush it down the toilet, or I tear it up really, really small. I put some of it over in this trash can. I put some over in that trash can, and I stick the rest in my pocket, all right? Or just have a lighter with you when you're done journaling. We had somebody, um, was it the episode we taped earlier today? Fella says he journals, and he, oh, yeah, he loves throwing them in the, his fireplace. Yeah, likes to watch them burn. He likes to watch them burn and go up in smoke, and those issues are gone for the day. So there are plenty of workarounds. Do you have a shredder in your office? Just stick them in your shredder, right? And stick them through again. Um, but you guys got to get it out. You cannot let your fears um, stay inside of you. You cannot let your pain stay inside of you. That's the root of so much your pain, so much your bad decisions as a parent. So it's either driving or influencing your parenting. All this stuff has to come out. Next question. I have childhood trauma and my life is chaotic. How do I begin to heal? If you have childhood trauma and your present life is chaotic, what's happening is inside of your love cup, you've got rocks and manure and crud being dumped in every day, but you've also got rocks and manure and crud from your past. So you're simultaneously dealing with your past and your present, Richard. All right? Imagine if you got all the past stuff out of there or even cut it in half. You would have so, so much more energy, focus, attention to deal with the present. And if you've done the work of getting the past stuff out of there, well, now you've got the routine. Now you know how to do the work. Now you can deal with the present stuff. But that doesn't answer your question. You say, I have childhood trauma. My life is chaotic. How do I begin to heal? Honestly, you want just honest answer? I could spend the next 10 minutes and put this big a dent in how you heal. I sum it up by saying you have to flush out of you all the pain, fears, and bullshit beliefs you've been taught about yourself. The most important part is the bullshit beliefs you've been taught about yourself that you can't even see. So you're like, well, how the hell do I do that? That's what I wrote the book for. There's a hole in my love cup, all right? It's at badasscounseling.com, and it'll kick your ass. It will change your life. If you have the courage to do the work in the book, this will change your life. I could spend... All, all these podcasts that I do, all of these lives that I do are somehow a chapter in this book or a chapter in my latest book, Badass Wisdom. But start with this one. There's a hole in my love cup. You can get it at badasscounseling.com. I, I hold your hand through the process. The truth is you have shit in your past that you don't want to touch. And you guys have heard me say it a million times, that grand quote by Joseph Campbell, the cave you most fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. Deep down inside of you is all that pain, the fears, and the crap you were taught about yourself. But even more than that, even more than the crap you were taught about yourself is then the implications. See, this is often what people fear, that if I really began to look at the messages I got, if I began to look at how I was treated by my parents, what was done, how I wasn't treated, the neglect, if I began to look at that, well, there are implications. Well, you don't have to change everything in your, anything. I always tell people, you don't have to change your relationship with your living, breathing parents. I don't care. Or your sister, whoever it was that has caused you pain. You don't have to change one single thing. I can still heal you, even if you don't change one single thing with them. But what it forces you to do when you go into that past, it forces you to have these giant realizations like maybe, gee, I've never had a family to begin with. I know that person said they were my dad and that person said they were my mom, but the way they treated me, that's not family. That's not love. That, and that's just one of many potential implications. The realization that, oh my God, I thought my mom was the hero and dad was the villain, but really mom was the one that allowed it to happen. And I have some people for whom that's a worse crime. So it's not just that you have pain and fear in there, but you have stuff you were taught about yourself that you can't see, but you also have the implications of looking at all that stuff. And that is the cave you fear to enter. That's what you're running from. The pills, the booze, the overworking, overparenting, the chaos, 
the overshopping, the gambling, the cheating, whatever you're using to escape your reality, whatever drug or medication or self-medication or eating you know, uh, disorder sometimes is this. It's a means of escape from this life. And this life that you're running from is really all that stuff from way back there. It's not the stuff happening today. You may think it's this relationship. No, it's that stuff way back there. All right. Next question. Rob, what say ye? Got one here from uh, YouTube. All righty. All right. And it's this. As a child, I had my parents dump their detailed personal stories on me like adultery, rape, betrayals within family. My journalism has been ineffective. Could you suggest some prompts or questions? I'm, I tell you what I'm going to recommend. I'm going to recommend that you go to my website and there's a free article there. I wrote it, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, whatever it was. And it's uh, it titled Emotional Incest. Emotional Incest. And it's, it revolves around this grand problem of parent as friend and you know having your child be your mini-me. And those are all derivatives of, and this is a derivative as well of emotional incest. It's using the child to be my therapist, not even therapist, to be my shit stick. I'm gonna dump adult problems onto a child. You wanna make a big mistake? Do that. See, I've had clients who said, Sven, I literally, as far back as I can remember, in fact, Sven, I remember it's before I started preschool because we were still living in the other town. We hadn't moved to this town, and that's when I started preschool. I can recall my mother, my father, whoever, you know, my grandmother who raised me, dumping all their problems onto me, worries about the mortgage and, and all their past pains from their own childhood or their worries about will I ever find a new you know, husband, whatever it is. But here's the thing. A three-year-old, a five-year-old, a six-year-old, an eight-year-old, do you want to know what the extent of their problems, what their brains and their heart and their soul can handle? It can handle this. Daddy, my pencil is broken. Where do I get a new pencil? That's the extent of worry that a five-year-old can handle. Yet I have had more clients over the years than I could even begin to count who say, Sven, I was in kindergarten or I was in second grade. And I remember every day on the drive to school, dad complaining about all his problems and how mom said blah, 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 or, or mom telling me about all the shit she went through in childhood and how she was abused and she was raped by her uncle and blah, blah, blah. I remember it back then. Or I remember back when I was eight. This is the amount of power that a child has to comprehend and problem solve. The amount of stress is a broken pencil. And I'm being somewhat um, hyperbolic, but it's actually true at those younger ages. So now here you are dumping problems, adult-sized problems onto a child-sized vessel. I'm holding in my hand uh, my water jug and I just screwed the top off it. So now, and this top is about one and a half inches across. Now, if I were to dump out that entire water jug into that cup, I'm sure that, that little cap would hold it all, right? No, of course it wouldn't. No, that water jug, all that water in there represents the size of adult problems. That little cap that normally goes on top of the water jug can hold broken pencil size problems. And once you start fill, but the thing is what you're pouring out into that child is crud, manure, pain, stress, anxiety, hatred, rage, more pain, more pain, more pain, problems. And you know what the child's reflex is? The child's natural reflex is to comfort a parent and the child begins to realize, wait, this is my problem too. How do I solve it so that mommy can be happy? 
All that child wants is mommy to be happy because when mom's happy, then mom's happy with me. And then we have a happy house and then life's good. The child is trying to solve your problems. You don't want a child trying to solve adult problems. You don't want a teenager trying to solve adult problems. They're not ready. They're dealing with, does he like me? Say, do you like me? Yes or no? Check one of these boxes, then hand this note back to Susie and Sally, right? That's what, you know, does the boy like me? Am I going to finish my geometry assignment? That's what they can handle. But they want to help the parent heal. They want to help the parent become happy. So what happens is they begin to start helping the parent do that. And guess what happens to their own feelings? Zoop, all the way down. It gets bottled up and blocked away because the child is getting the message, my feelings, my wants, my needs don't matter. All that matters is the person I'm in relationship with. In this case, mommy. In this case, daddy. Whoever it is whose problems they're eating and hearing about how bad their childhood was, for example, right? So their own feelings, they get taught their own feelings don't matter, which is just a horrible setup for adult relationships. Why? Because they're never gonna prioritize their own feelings. Additionally, consider this. This is one I run into with clients all the time where they say, I feel bad. How can I complain about my, how my mom parented me? I heard all the stories of how she was parented and I just feel so bad for her. And forgive me, I'm not trying to be crass. It's like I've literally had clients come to me and say, Sven, yeah, I was telling my girlfriends about this new guy I'm dating, Billy. And Billy's great. And I mean, he yells at me a lot. I was telling my girlfriends he yells at me a lot. But it's so much better, and he puts me down, but it's so much better than my last relationship with Paul because Paul would yell at me and put me down and punch me in the face. So it's so much better than that. And the girlfriend's like, no, it's not. You have an incredibly low bar. That's not okay. I've literally had clients. People come to me with that exact issue. Well, at least I'm not getting punched in the face. At least he's not stealing my money. At least she's not sleeping with other men, okay? It's the same here with the child. You, if you're an adult child who had a rough or a bad or a hard childhood, you may be saying, yes, but my parents had it so much more. That doesn't matter. You, that child, had a, you were neglected or you were hurt or you were put down or you were insulted or you were taught that you were never good enough. It doesn't matter what your parent went through. They subjected you to pain that sure, you weren't getting punched in the face, but you are still being abused or taken advantage of or taught that your value is only found in what you do, okay? All of these messages get conveyed to a child. So they then think their feelings don't matter because look how bad mom had it. Okay, so to the person saying, you know, uh, you know, what in the end was the question on that question, Rob? Detailed personal stories on me like adultery, rape, and betrayals within family. Yeah. Yeah, and you have to do the deliberate work of going inside and flushing out all those stories. But that also means you have, do you have the courage to admit how horrible your parent was? They may have been fine on other stuff, but the notion of exposing children to adult problems and adult pains and adult issues, rape, adultery, really? That's what you want to teach an eight-year-old? No, no. And putting their pains, teaching them that their feelings don't matter, putting those problems onto them and they, they're trying to help you with your problems and they're stressing out over it and feeling responsible for the adult, all of that is wrong. And you've got to get it out of there. And part of what you may be forced to realize is that I really had a shitty parent. 
And by the way, folks, your whole mini me or I want my child to be my best friend, those are derivatives of this exact problem. Go read the article on the website, Badass Counseling. It's entitled something along the lines of emotional incest and parent as friend. All right, more to come. But right now, let's take a quick break. I will be right back. I've been doing some real healing work in my life, and I mean hardcore. But I've been craving something new to level up. A friend of mine told me about this badass counselor. I gotta admit, I rolled my eyes. Then I watched a few of his videos, and yes, this is the guy. I went and got his audiobook, Badass Wisdom. Holy shit. Absolute ass-kicking, inspiring, deep, powerful shit, period. If you don't get this book, you're making a huge mistake. So do you got the guts to go big with your self-care? Go to badasscounseling.com, get the book Badass Wisdom now. This show provides soul counseling intended to entertain and inform and is not medical advice. Now, back to the badass. Good to have you back, badasses. I am Sven Erlens, and this is the lightning round of the Badass Counseling Show. Next question is, is it unhealthy then, and this is a follow-up on the question we were just addressing, is it unhealthy to want your child to be a mini-me? Yes, it is. Yes, it's unhealthy. It's an unhealthy indicator of you. And I'm not saying you're a bad person by wanting. It's not about your value as a human being, but it's an indicator you want something from that child. Why? Otherwise, why would you want them to be your mini-me? What is it, if we were talking and you know having a beer or whatever, I'd ask you, what is it you want from them being your mini-me? What do you get from it? And very often, uh, if I'm wanting, I'm wanting that child to make me proud, be like me, make me proud, um, and because then it's an extension of me. Well, now that means I'm robbing the child of what about just mini-you? What if you just be you? rather than being me. Because the truth is, children model themselves after their parents anyway, to some degree. But if you're adding that pressure to do so, then what's happening to that child's voice, it's getting squelched and squelched and squelched. Because why? They're getting love by being like you. That may feel good to me as an adult, but that's not your role as a parent. Your role as a parent is to help that child become who the fuck they really are. One of the exercises I do with clients all the time is I say, just take a piece of paper and draw a line down the middle, top to bottom. So you have two columns. And in the, at the top of the column on the left, write the words mom and dad's values or mom's values or dad's values, right? And just think of the things that they valued. So my father was fiscally conservative and he said, you know, always save money. He'd say um, rich people just have bigger problems. He'd say things like, um, always save money for a rainy day. Mom would say something, and those were all financial, but he had plenty of other things to say. Mom would say, don't wear out your welcome. Don't wear out your welcome. In other words, don't be a burden on people. And these different things. So I listed as many of their values as I can. Then in the right-hand column, at the top of the right-hand column, I write the words, my values. And then I simply take of their values, and I go across the column, straight across from it, and I say, is uh, always save for a rainy day, is that my value? And for me, I okay, um, yes. But then I actually, next to the yes or next to the no, I put a percentage. What percentage is always saved for a rainy day? My value, one of my values. Um, 40%, because I also believe in living now as well. So it's rather than dad always said, save for a rainy day. I always have to save for a rainy day. You're uh, what you're fundamentally doing 
is you're answering the question, is it possible that your parents' values are different from your values? And that's a fucking eye-opener for a lot of people. A, because they don't realize they can have their own values. So when you say, is it unhealthy to want your child to be a mini-me? Yeah, because you're fundamentally saying, I want you to be a clone of me, a mini-me. What if they're actually different from you? What if they don't want to be like you? Not because you're bad, but they don't like the fact that you keep a dirty kitchen and they want to just have a clean kitchen. What if they don't like the fact, I had an older brother growing up. There were six of us kids. There were five of us boys and then my sister. And uh, one of our brothers, he would, do you remember back in the 70s, the the white stretch socks that pull up over your calf? And then it usually had like three stripes on it, three green stripes or something like that. And this brother he loved when we were all done with our long socks because he'd wear them. He didn't care if the elastic could run out and they'd always fall down his calves, right? So imagine if you're the kid of the dad who wears the socks that wear fall down his calves. And then this sounds like a trivial thing. But my values aren't your values. I don't want to wear socks that there's no elastic in that fall down my calves. Now, that may sound incredibly trivial, but imagine if a child doesn't feel comfortable enough to talk about something as trivial as that. No, I have to be dad's mini-me. I have to like those socks too. Or I have to work on engines because my dad worked on engines. I grew up with my dad working on engines in our garage in Minnesota in 30 below weather. And I'm sorry, I don't work on engines anymore. It is not a value for me to stand out in the cold of 30 below for anything. I didn't paper route at 30 below. That was enough. Okay, so the point is you've got to make room. So is it unhealthy to want your child to be a mini-me? Yes, but it's unhealthy. A, it indicates something in you, some need that's going unmet that you're now trying to put on child, but it's unhealthy for the child because it gives them no room to have their own voice, their own sense of identity. Next question. Can you please speak on generational trauma and, quote, breaking the cycle from the point of the cycle, from the point of view of the cycle breaker? Yeah, generational trauma. I was just talking a few minutes ago about how, oh, you know, mom had it so bad growing up, so I can't complain about how I have it bad or something like that. These are indicators of generational trauma. And it's where basically the stuff that happened with mom or dad, excuse me, or whoever raised you, maybe you were raised by your grandfather, whatever, where the stuff that they went through, they never flush out of them. The pain, the fears, all the crap they were taught about themselves, all the um, sadness and rage from them being abused, whatever it might've been, that they never flushed it out of them. So that meant it either drove, directly drove their decisions and their parenting decisions with you, or they did the opposite, or it infused itself. It infected every single decision. If you have major trauma from your past, I guarantee you, guarantee you, despite all your efforts and swearing up and down to the opposite, I guarantee you, it is influencing your parenting. All that negative shit is influencing your parenting. Guaranteed. You may say, well, I'm just doing the opposite of what my parents did. (laughs) Bad answer. Do you want to know why? I've had plenty of clients and people that I've worked with over the years who say, yeah, I had parents who weren't affectionate at all. Didn't say I love you, never got a hug, whatever. And so I made a decision. I was going to love the shit out of my kids. I was always giving them hugs and telling them I love them and just made sure they always knew every single day of life that they were loved. I had clients who would say, you know, every time one of my kids came into the room, I gave them a hug. And if you're... uh, eight-year-old kid, nine, 10-year-old kid, how long do you think that lasts before it's like, get, ma, enough, dad, jeepers, creepers. Dad, 
can you just drop me a block from school? I'm just going to walk the last block. <laughs> I The stuff I have heard of parents doing the opposite of what their parents do, thinking, well, if, if my parents did this over here, then the opposite has got to be great. And it's not. It often leads to the very same neuroses or the very same rage or anger or hurt. Why? Because the child, in, in that particular case of the affection one, the child realizes they have an innate understanding very often that this isn't about me. It's such an over-the-top, syrupy show of affection constantly. This isn't about me. And they start to distrust you. It's like the parents who are always, 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 always praising their children. Had plenty of clients like this. The, the child starts to distrust them. Oh, my mom just says that. I, I know she doesn't. It's just like, this is stupid. You're just saying it. I didn't do anything to earn it. You're just praising me for no reason, all right? They don't trust you. So just doing the opposite of what your parents did is not an answer. So you're saying, can you please speak on generational trauma and breaking the cycle from the point of view of the cycle breaker? If you're just doing the opposite of your parents, you're still using your parents as the fundamental orientation point. You're just doing the opposite which means you're still taking your cues from them. That's not breaking a trauma. You're, you're taking a bad parent as your orientation point. How do you break generational trauma? You go into your every single one of your memories that has an emotional charge attached to it, and you begin to decharge. You begin to remove the emotional charges. How do you do that? I've written books to help you do that. This... Um, podcast, when I counsel people on this podcast, is help you begin to identify the emotional charges attached to those memories in your past. Take a pad of paper and a pen. Do a bullet point of every single memory you have that has any sort of feeling attached to it. Embarrassment, sadness, exuberance, rage, pain, sorrow. Name the memories. And then next to each one of those bullet points, list all of the sub-bullet point, all the sub-bullet points of every single feeling attached to that. Then you go in. And, and it's just a question of how badly do you want to heal? How free do you want to be of all the crud from your past? And you begin to journal about those. You begin to allow those feelings up that you were required to keep down. That's how you begin to heal generational trauma, by you going into the pains of your past and the messages you were taught about yourself, flushing those out. And then it requires the courage to stand up and say no. And it also requires doing the fucking research on what is good parenting. Because a lot of people, if they've had bad parents or neglectful parents, they don't know how to parent. Well, guess what? There are so many great resources out there. One of them, great parenting book, came out, I don't know, five, eight years ago, um, Scream Free Parenting by Hal Runkle, I believe it is, therapist. Great book. There's I Was Raised as a Spock Baby, the book by Dr. Benjamin Spock, Baby and Child Care from the 1940s. It's now in its like five billionth edition. Fantastic book. There's so many great parenting books out there. Ones I don't even know. I am not a child, um, a parenting expert. Uh, and there are people who are, and they have wonderful materials, but how do you break gener generational trauma? You start reading more than one and begin to synthesize in conversations with whomever you're raising this child with, if you are. A deliberate plan, not just for what are we gonna, how are we gonna treat this baby, but where do we want them to end up at 22, at 34, or at 18? It's parenting, as my 93-year-old mother, before she passed, she was 93, she said for decades, deliberate parenting. And she was a specialist in early childhood education, taught at the graduate level and all that. But you you have to, to break any generational trauma, you have to go into your own trauma and begin to flush that out of you. All right, next question. Sven, I'll give you a, a Sven's choice here. We've okay. got a narcissistic mother and I'm worried. 
Um, I'm having a hard time uh, dealing with the feelings about my dead husband or I've been divorced and I can't stand it that my kids are playing with her new guy. Which one do you like? <laughs> take your pick. Uh, I'm going to take the last two, the death one. Okay. So having you trouble want, dealing with the... I'll read it to you if please. you're ready. Oh, right. thanks. Why am I having such a hard time wanting to get into the, my feelings of my dead husband that I know at times was so abusive? I do know there's a lot of pain there. I just resist to go there. Uh, okay, you asked the simple question, why do you resist to go there? It's so packed full of fucking emotion that you fear it will overwhelm you, that it will destroy you, that you will have to feel all of the sadness because you loved your husband. You did. All right, I'm willing to I'm willing to wager on that. You loved him, but you hated him for the abuse. Hate is a natural response to abuse. And if you've been abused and you tell me you don't have hate, I don't believe you. It's a natural response. You don't ever have to act on it, but that's just a natural feeling when someone's abusing you. So you've got love, you've got hate, you've got sorrow that he's dead. You got so many fucking emotions inside of you right now. You don't know which way is up. And the reason you resisted it, because it means I'm going to have to let all that up and I'm going to end up feeling a lot of it. Yeah, you are. You are. And it sucks. It sucks. Yet, it's beautiful. It's fucking beautiful. The best scene, you guys can Google this, the scene of Tom Cruise in taps when he's shooting the machine gun. They're defending their, you know, prep military school. And he's going, he turns and he looks over while he's gunning, he's gunning. He goes, it's beautiful, man. It's beautiful. All right, anyway, uh, that's what healing is. That's what bringing up, going into all those feelings, it's beautiful, man, it's beautiful. It is, you wanna know why? Because finally, if you have the courage to go into all those overwhelming feelings, whether it's from your past or from your husband who is abusive or from the all the feelings you have for maybe your, your pet lover and your pet has died in the last year and that pet was with you for 20 years and you just fear all those feelings, and it takes courage to go in and begin to flush all of that out, especially when it's mixed feelings, rage, love, hatred, anger, sadness, all of that. But the more you do it, it's beautiful, man. You want to know why? Because you begin to experience, the more you do it, the sweet release and the relief of living with a cleaner heart, of living with emptying your soul of all that rocks and those rocks and crud. And you begin to become lighter, literally, physically lighter. Have you ever experienced stress where your heart beats faster, your pits start to sweat, and you feel heavy? The release of stress, the release of pain brings the physical sensation of lightness. The reason you're running is because it's scary. And the life-changing moment is when you turn from that tidal wave of pain and anger and rage and all those feelings, whether it's from your past or from your marriage, that tidal wave you've been running from because you know if you stop, it'll wash over you and overwhelm you. But when you, the beautiful moment is when you turn and you stop and you face that tidal wave and you let the pain wash over you. As the great mystic poet Rumi said, the cure for the pain is the pain. All right, what was that third question, Rob? All right, that's uh, this. Been divorced for one and a half years. How do you deal with the guy she's with is playing with my kids? I feel like a terrible dad that I couldn't keep the marriage together and I still love her. Oh, there's so much going on there. There's a guilt over I couldn't keep it together and potentially feeling like, boy, I'm, I'm not lovable and I'm not enough of a man, especially if you loop your own lovability into your ability to perform. 
and do things that if, and if so, if something fails, it's because I didn't do something rather than just two people didn't fit or what have you. So you're feeling the, the inadequacy over not doing enough. You're feeling the longing for the person that you lost and you're feeling probably rage or anger and jealousy over your children playing with someone else, like someone else is supplanting you. And that's what this issue really is. Someone else is taking your place, not just in the lives of the kids, but in her eyes. She doesn't want you anymore. And that hurts to hear and it hurts to think about. But I guarantee you, I'm not telling you anything you haven't already thought about, right? How do you deal with it? You don't deal with it. You flush it out, man. You go into it. You, the healing process, if you're still trying to cope, you aren't healed yet. Sometimes we have to cope, but you got to go into the healing. That means start bringing up those feelings, put pen to paper and start flushing them out. If you don't have a therapist, I recommend you get a therapist, but you can do this work on your own. And again, I strongly recommend that you get my book. There's a hole in my love cup. It's a life changer. And this will take you down deep. It will ask you the questions, but you have to have the courage to put pen to paper. And in fact, the simplest thing, very simplest thing, even if you don't journal, but you got this woman that you love and you miss, you feel guilty and bad that you couldn't make it work. You're angry at the, the new person playing with your kids. Start writing letters to them that you do not send. Send it if you want, but you don't need to. The healing is in not sending it. Plus, if you think you're going to send it, you're going to start to edit it. And the point of it is to flush all your feelings out and keep flushing them out and keep flushing them out until, because I'd lived through this. I swear to God, I lived through this. My first wife, she divorced me. I didn't want to be divorced from her. I didn't want somebody else with my kids and it just broke my heart. I've literally lived what you're talking about. It took me like two years, really fully, to let go of wanting her and so forth and cried my eyes out. And you cry and you cry, but the pain that the tears are supposed to get rid of are, is still there. <laughs> and you know, I journal my ass off and you just keep flushing and flushing and flushing. Then I reach the point where it's like, I think I'm good. And I also reached the point where I'll, I realized, well, all her accusations of me, it's like, I'm paying a $500 punishment for a $5 crime. And I'm sick of it. And so, but you just flush it out and eventually move on. And, and the unfortunate part about divorce is that, yes, your children are going to play with someone else. And truth is, if, uh, it's, if she's already in a new relationship, it's the wife, ex-wife, right, Rob? If she's already in a new relationship, kids are playing with it. You want to know what the worst part? It's not that your kids are playing with the new guy. It's that that relationship is still so young, it probably won't even last. So the worst part is your kids are going to get attached to that person. And then that person's going to be gone. And that's going to feel good to you because finally, oh, fuck, that, that guy's gone. But if you're thinking about from your kid's perspective, it sucks because they're having to grieve the loss of someone that probably was entered into their life too soon. Potentially, in this case, and we don't have the full timeline, the mom's being irresponsible by bringing someone in so soon, right? Um, so your pain, I'm sure you'll feel good when that person's out of her life, potentially, uh, but it's going to hurt your kids. And that's why you need to be flushing out your pain so that you're able to be present to the needs of your kids when they're hurting. And they are hurting because guess what? At the moment, they'd much rather be playing with you. Now, if this is a good person who's playing with them now and is still there 10, 20 years from now, if you're, if you're a good, you know, well-thinking person, you'll think how wonderful that this good person, that my parent, that my children got another good influence in their lives. They may end up with a great stepdad. Boy, what a blessing. What a blessing. But you have to have the ability to get past your ego, your pain, your sadness, in order to reach the point that your children having good people in their lives is always a win. All right, I got a question here. 
My mom was great to other people and awful to me and brother. She just died and I fell apart. Okay, first of all, she just died and fell apart. So this is piggybacks right on top of the question we just answered, this notion of this giant jumble of feelings. And, and the one before that, of, you know, the ex-husband died and he was, or the husband died and was abusive and all this shit. It's the same thing. You've got this jumble of feelings inside of you, Faith. And that's why you fall apart because what you were feeling for your mother was missing your mother's sadness that she died. But more, more importantly than that, if she was great to other people and awful to you and your brother, I guarantee, I guarantee you spent your life wanting to get your mother's approval or at the very least, get her to stop criticizing. I guarantee. And so when she dies, there's no longer a chance of you ever getting her approval. And so what di- What the reason that the, that child into adulthood wants that approval is because it confirms that child, that now adult child's worth. And if I don't get that confirmation from the person who always denied me, then I forever believe I have no worth. What died for you is the opportunity to have this external power source confirm your worth, which means now you have to go about the business of flushing out all your past pain and begin to confirm your own worth. Self-confirmation, self-affirmation, self-validation is the beginning of happiness. But I want to say, comment on this other piece you said, and stay with me here, badasses. Stay with me, because this is where it really gets nasty. Faith opens by saying, My mom was great to other people and awful to me and brother. One of the most critical and pivotal things that I do in counseling with people is when, you know, everybody has to write an autobiography for me, every client, and I read it before we ever go into session, spend a few hours on it free of charge. And they've likely put in there things that were done to them in in their childhood or the neglect that they endured in their childhood. And I'll ask them, well, what's your relationship with your parent now? Well, my parent is dead. Well, how did you resolve it inside yourself? Well, I forgave my parents years ago. You know, I, I, dad did his best after mom died. And yeah, he was a bit abusive, but you know, he did his best. So I forgave him. Or you know what? After my dad ran off and cheated with that person, then mom was left to raise us by herself and she was a working mom. And, and I understand, and I understand. What they're doing is they're watching the movie of their lives from the and watching the adults in the movie and trying to understand and trying to forgive because they've been taught that if I forgive or if I understand, then my pain will go away. No, it won't. You're just stuffing it down deeper. But here's the thing. Here, you want to know the one sentence? And so until you get all that pain out, your forgiveness doesn't mean shit. It doesn't matter what anybody's selling about forgiveness. Forgiveness doesn't make your pain go away. It just stuffs it down deeper. You can forgive later, but until you get all that pain out, you're just lying to yourself. That forgiveness ain't doing shit. And I'm a former Lutheran pastor. Guess what I used to preach on? Notions of forgiveness, okay? So I'm telling you, just saying you forgive doesn't solve it. It may, You may think it is, but it doesn't. All right, but here's the real issue. Do you want to know the one sentence that most often accompanies when someone says, oh, you know, I forgive my parent, or you know what, I understand, mom was just doing her best, or I understand, or you know, I get it, and it's okay, I understand. Do you want to know the one sentence that usually accompanies that? It was this, they did their best, and or they didn't know any better. They didn't know any better. Listen to this sentence. And oftentimes when I've read their autobiography or when they I've learned more of their life story, I get situations as clear as this. Listen to this. So imagine if Faith says, well, you know, mom did her best. She didn't know any better. You literally just said, Faith, my mom was great to other people and awful to me and my brother. She obviously did know better. 
She literally made a choice. It's not that she didn't know how to raise you. She literally made a choice. When she was around other people, she treated them great. When she was around you, she treated you poorly. That was a choice. It's not that she was incapable. She was fully capable. When I get people who say to me, oh, you know, I was the shit stick of our family. I was the scapegoat. And mom, you know, my dad was great to the other kids, but he was horrible to me. It's like he picked me out as the one that he was going to abuse. And trust me, folks, this happens more than you can imagine. But, you know, he didn't know any better. What do you mean he didn't know any better? He literally chose you to hurt, but chose to not hurt them. He obviously knew better. He treated them better. So my question to all of you is, as you look back on the people who have harmed you, do you find yourself saying, oh, they didn't know any better? Then my question is, so you're saying they treated every, or your husband doesn't know any better, your wife, they're doing their best. Really? They're doing their best? So you're saying they treat every single person in their life the way they treat you. I guarantee the answer to that is no. I guarantee if they work for a company, they're not treating, if they're abusive to you, verbally abusive, I guarantee they're not treating everyone in that company verbally abusively, particularly not their boss. Why? Well, they'd probably be hearing from HR. Or if they run the company, I guarantee they are not, If you know, you know somebody who, uh, owns a company, your husband owns a company. Oh, he's an asshole to everybody in his company. Is he an asshole to his customers? Is he an asshole when he's trying to win a customer? Is he an asshole to his vendors, to his suppliers? I guarantee he ain't. You wanna know why? Because no one would do business with him. There's still, even in this world, it is still about relationships to some greater or lesser degree. So if the person is capable of turning it on in certain situations and turning it off in other situations, then saying they're doing their best is bullshit. They're not doing their best because they're doing well. They're treating this person over here well, but they're treating me poorly. That means they're making a choice. That means they know, they know what better treatment is, which means if they're treating you poorly, they're not doing their best. They prove every day that they're capable of operating at higher levels, but they choose not to with you. So you saying they're doing their best or they didn't know any better, it's an absolute lie. And you are saying it to yourself to comfort for the fact that you can't bear to admit that they don't care. That you were raised by a parent who didn't care enough to do the work to love you the way they loved other people. You wanna grab somebody by the throat and shake them with the truths of their past? That's one realization that'll do it. You wanna have somebody just sit back in their chair, and I've seen this so many times. I'll be counseling someone, they'll just sit back in their chair and they'll be like this, oh my God, you're right. And they'll be blown away because they'll realize they've been lying to themselves the whole time without even realizing they were lying to themselves. Or sometimes they'll say, you know, somewhere in me, Sven, I always knew that was true. God, but until you said it, it just, I've never faced it. Yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll testify to the truth in that, Sven. Cool. My father was never abusive. Um, he wasn't really there for much. He was always a great provider. But I always knew that he complimented me heavily to other people, but never to me. Never to me. And when he died... Oh, by the way, the one time in my life I remember him saying, attaboy, was like a lightning bolt. Wow. <laughs> it was fabulous. But when he died, I got the phone call. I was at work, and I said, yeah, okay. And I went to a department head meeting, and then I told the boss. He says, why'd you come to the meeting? I said, I, I don't know. I was, you know, very, very matter-of-fact about it. And you know, I've come to realize, yeah, there was so much he could have done. Mm. 
I missed so much. And my brother and I had a long chat about this not long ago. My father died when, when I was 35. Mm. It was a long time ago. It was the 80s. Uh-huh. But my brother and I decided, yeah, you know, that's all true. And what we want to do and what we feel like we have done is become comfortable in our ambivalence. Because mm. there was never anything horribly bad, but it's what was missing that hurts. Right. And it's harder to call that out in a parent, even if you don't call it out to the parent, it's harder to call out neglect or ambivalence or indifference from a parent or just distance from a parent. Even if they're physically present, they're absent. It's harder to call that out because there's no glaring. Nothing. And yet the impact on the child. So if, if someone is treating someone else differently from how they're treating you, they're, they are admitting right there, they are capable of treating you differently. They just choose not to. And then you've got to ask yourself the question. Let's say in the case of a lover, why do I want to believe that they're incapable yet good rather than believing they're capable yet just fucking cruel? Whether it's a lover, I mean, because if they're capable of showing someone else different behavior from what they're cho- showing you, that means they're choosing to show you a lower level, which says how little they think of you. And that to me is just fucking cruelty. All right, we're going to take uh, one more question here, Rob. Maybe two, but if you've got a good one, uh, speak up, please, Rob. Otherwise, I will fish here. We get so many. You guys have such great questions, and I'm so sorry that we can't get them all. I'll go back to this one if you'd like. Raised by a narcissistic mother as the golden child and was also the scapegoat in my teen years, how can I be sure I'm not a narcissistic parent to my own children? I really fear being like her. Okay, first of all, I deal with a golden child. It's an entire chapter in my book. There's a hole in my love cup. And uh, I've mentioned it before, but a lot of people don't realize that being the sibling of a golden child, it's not hard to figure out how you feel like you're getting the shit end of the shit stick, right? Because the golden child gets all the attention and you're, you know, it's like they suck all the oxygen out of the room. I've had clients, many clients over the years say it's the same when you have a special needs sibling. You adore your sibling, but you always feel like they're getting all the attention or you feel neglected because mom or mom and dad are giving all the attention that one. So But what they don't realize about being a a golden child is it comes with its own pain, specifically the pain of you never get to be yourself fully. You are expected to be who you are expected to be, and you only get love when you are being that person you are expected to be, when you are succeeding, when you're making them proud, when you're giving them a reason to siphon your successes and brag. Okay. So um, I deal with the golden child syndrome in here. So go ahead and read the question again, Rob, please. Narcissistic mother. Raised by a narcissistic mother as the golden child and was also the scapegoat in my teen years. Mm -hmm. How can I be sure I'm not a narcissistic parent to my own children? I really fear being like her. Yeah, the first thing you can do is, first of all, if you fear being like her, it's quite possible you're just at this time doing everything opposite of what she did. As I explained earlier, that is not a formula for successful parenting, just doing the opposite. The way you can ensure that you're not being like her, the way you can ensure you're actually being a deliberate parent, a solid, loving parent, is by going into all of that, uh, all the expectations, all the pain from the early childhood, but then all the anger when you began uh, becoming the um, scapegoat, the pain, the anger, the sadness, all of those feelings. It's the stored feelings and the messages you were taught about yourself because in both messages, that's a great example you just give there. As the golden child, you weren't allowed to be yourself. You had to be who they wanted you to be, right? So they're basically saying the real you doesn't matter. And then you get to teen years and what are you getting confirmed? You don't matter. You're a piece of shit. You're a loser. You're whatever. You said you're the family scapegoat. 
So in both situations, in two different methods, you're being taught that you're not important, you don't matter, you're no good. That means you've got not only pain in your past, but you've got those beliefs that are got pressed into the wet cement of your soul, into the wet cement, and it hardened and calcified. That means deep down inside of you, unless you've done the deep dive work, which so many people haven't just because the tools aren't out there, which is what my books are for, specifically for this, if you haven't gone down into that deep dive to destroy that cement with those messages in it that they say you don't matter, or you're not good enough, then those core beliefs are infecting all of your parenting. So potentially you're using your children to get your own needs met precisely as you fear. Therefore, solution, dive down to that cement and begin to identify and root out and destroy those messages inside of you by flushing out all the pain and fears, etc. And that, again, that's what I wrote the book for, literally to step you through the process, to hold your hand of going down to those messages, identifying them, and then looking at the implications and dealing with all the feelings of the implications of realizing what you were taught to believe about yourself. And until you do that, I guarantee all of your pain and fears and all that shit from your childhood, I guarantee it is either directly driving or significantly influencing all of your parenting. And it's not whether, about your, whether or not you're a narcissist. That's not the issue. The issue is, are you causing pain to your child, short-term or worse, long-term? And the only way of reducing that is by getting out of you all the stuff that's causing you to inflict that pain in many forms. And inflicting pain on a child can come in the forms of giving too much affection too much attention as we know from the golden child right so just doing the opposite ain't the answer all right one last one and it's time to wind this one up gave myself a christmas gift of mattering and i broke it off and i broke off the narcissist on saturday saturday let's all give dawn a round of applause yo yo gave myself a christmas gift of mattering and broke off the narcissist on saturday question is what is your number one tip for moving on Number one tip, start writing letters to your narcissist and flush in those letters everything using the most vile, disgusting, nasty, dirty, ugly, feeling, emotional-filled words you are capable of conjuring from your soul. It's like I always say, you know, when you fry, you grill a steak in your broiler in the winter, you know, because you don't want to set up the grill because there's snow on the ground outside and you do it in there and you got the, your grill pan and the grease drippings drip down into the lower pan and you go eat your steak with your vegetables and all that, but then you go back and all that grease is dry and you got to clean it up, right? And most of the grease is easy, but some of it bakes in. It's that black stuff on the bottom of a grill pan, you know, and you got to get the Brillo pad and you got to get the SOS and you just, you're grinding, you're scouring that pan. Otherwise you won't get it out. It's the same way with toxic relationships. In this case with the narcissist, you've got to go into all those feelings and you've got to scour the pan that is your soul and that is all those messages and all, that means you gotta, in those letters, write about hate, write about all the love. I mean, you potentially still have some longing for the person, sexual or affectionate or whatever it might be, or financial, whatever it might be. Write it all out, write it all out. Don't send the letter, do yourself a favor, but flush out all your feelings. Biggest thing you can do moving forward, when moving on from this narcissist in your life, biggest thing you can do is just keep flushing out all your fears and go back into your own past and this is the biggest thing. Go back into your own past and begin to find the root causes of how you ended up so long, so far into a relationship with a narcissist. Did I miss red flags? Why did I miss red flags? What was normalized for me about love? Such as what Rob was mentioning from his own life 
Um, what was normalized about love? What was I taught? And then you got to go into your past to identify that shit. Again, there's a hole in my love cup and badass wisdom tools to help you do exactly that at badasscounseling.com. All right, all you badasses, thank you for tuning in to yet another lightning round of the Badass Counseling Show. On behalf of my fellow producers, KC over in the booth and Rob the Rocket sitting next to me, have a kick-ass day. The Badass Counseling Show is strictly copyrighted. No copies may be made without the express written consent of the Badass Counseling Show, LLC. The Badass Counseling Show is produced by Karen Camparelli and Robert H. Friedman. Executive producer, Sven Erlinson. Original music by two-time Emmy Award-winning composer, Trevor Morris. Have a kick-ass day. Yeah.